Amen. Let's just continue as we always do when we come to this point in the service. Continue worship now in the Word as we turn our attention and I trust our affections to the Word of God. Take your Bible and open to Romans 9. Romans 9, an additional warm welcome to you if you're visiting with us and encourage you, if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, to just look in the rack in front of you. You will see one there that you can take and follow along with us with. It is in Romans 9 that we are continuing this morning. Well, church, the religious Jew has often been associated with religious zeal. In the Old Testament, this was seen especially in the Israel within Israel, the righteous remnant. That was the righteous remnant within the nation. With true faith, it was seen in them a zeal for holiness, a zeal for God. This is zealous action for the sake of protecting God's righteousness. Consider with me, From the zeal of Phineas, do you remember that in Numbers 25? To Samuel's zeal, with what he did to Agag in 1 Samuel 15. To Elijah in 1 Kings 18 with the prophets of Baal. Righteous zeal. The Old Testament testimony gave way to a period of roughly 400 years of silence. And in that time, that zeal started to shift from God's holiness to God's law. No less noble, no less sincere, but the object of zeal started to shift. Listen to the testimony in the book of Maccabees. This is an intertestamental book. Gives us a glimpse into some of the events that went on between the Old and New Testament. One of those books of Maccabees, the fourth volume, recounts this incident, the death of a Jewish priest named Eleazar. He refused to touch pork. Of course, pork, the pig, would be forbidden by Jewish law. He refused to touch it. Thus, he was beaten, tortured, and even at the point of death. At the point of death, he was pitied by the soldiers who saw him endure this beating for just not touching pork. They felt sorry for him. So what they did was they dressed up a piece of meat, which was not pork, and they told him almost secretly to eat it and just say it was pork. Just do that, Eleazar. However, he refused, and in the end, he was killed. All that for refusing to eat pork. Eleazar, like many Jewish kinsmen before him, zealous in his righteous pursuit. Do you see that? With the arrival of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, in the opening of the New Testament, what we see see is zeal now fully transferred from God's holiness to God's law, but something more has been morphing. More zeal, as we see the advent of the New Testament, Zeal that sought to establish a personal righteousness, a personal justification before God. And note the shift. This is it, a personal righteousness that was based on one's law performance. This is what we see. And let's 
Look at one of those. Just listen to this famous testimony from Luke 18. As Jesus tells it, verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and not only that, treated others with contempt. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Westmount, that is righteous pursuit, is it not? That's righteous pursuit. But, says Jesus, not a righteous pursuit that justifies. Not a righteous pursuit that makes one right. One could ask, as we consider this account in the Gospels and the lay of the land, the first century, for the Jew. What did such a Jew miss in his pursuit? How did it come to this? What caused the Jew to get so off track? Misguided goal. This morning, as we return to Romans 9, we will see the problem laid out very clearly. Let's take a look at this next passage, as we just again are simply continuing in Romans 9 and into Romans 10. Let's just consider it as a whole first. Look with me at verse 30 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we ask that you would take these words, these living words from your very breath, Father, and we ask that you would make them actual Give us eyes to see for us. Make them a reality this morning, not only in our minds, but in our hearts. Lord, may they not just sit there. May we live out their reality for our good and your glory. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen. We have learned so far in Romans 9 that God is absolutely sovereign over all. It's everything. He's sovereign over souls with the potter's rights to make vessels as he chooses and to have mercy or to harden whomever he wills. We've studied that. That has been very clear, I trust, for us in Romans. And along with that, we've seen that God's sovereignty never lessens man's responsibility before God. Each soul remains accountable and responsible before him. We've seen that especially in the opening chapters. And what is most shocking, we have learned then, 
is the circumstances of Israel. The stewards of all good in God's program, as we saw earlier in the chapter. Look at verse 4. Remember, they are Israelites. And then look at the laundry list of things that belong to them. From adoption to promise. We studied that. Israel's plight is most lamentable because from their nation, look at verse 5, came the Christ himself, Messiah. Messiah, the fullness and fulfillment of not only the holiness of God, but the law of God. Imagine to the Jew that had eyes to see, now they're running, turn to rest. Messiah come. Messiah had come. He came to fulfill the law, Matthew 5, 17. Perfect obedience. And this Messiah, this Jew, made clear that pursuit was now through faith in him. You see the change. Change for them, maybe in their practice, but it has always been that way. Consider his words to the remnant of faith. Listen to this in Matthew. Again, he has come and he taught, and he taught words like this. Matthew 11, verse 25. Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things, note the sovereignty, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. But it doesn't stop there with Jesus, right? He goes on in verse 28. He is sovereign, his triune sovereignty, but then in verse 28, come to me. Come to me. Speaking to the volition, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Messiah came, he lived, he fulfilled, and he taught. The Jews should have expected that. But the vast majority in Israel did not. And by and large, the Jews, as we've commented on a number of times over the past few weeks, to this very day, still do not receive and believe that. Why? Westmount, how do we explain Israel's unbelief? How do we explain Israel's unbelief? Well, as we often do, let us consider what the unbelief is not due to. And we just hug our study here. Number one, it's not because God is unfaithful to his promises. That's not why. We learned that in verses 6 to 13 of chapter 9, right? It's not because of that. Secondly, it's not because God is unjust in his purpose of election, right? We are all condemned. That's just. But God is merciful. God's sovereign bestowing of mercy is not a matter of justice. What did we learn? It's a matter of mercy, verses 14 through 18. And thirdly, it's not because God is unfair to blame Israel or any other human being. For as we learned last week, who are we to answer back to God? Verses 19 through 29. No, the reason Israel is in unbelief is because they are blind, proud, and continuing after a righteous pursuit 
won by their own works and effort instead of a righteous pursuit by faith. As such, they've stumbled over the only righteous one, Jesus Christ, their own Messiah. Yes, let us be clear as we begin this morning. Jesus Christ is an offense. He's an offense to ones running such a race like that. And that's our first point this morning. He is an offense in pursuit. He is an offense in pursuit. Let's read these opening verses again. Verse 30 through 32. It says this, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. Stop there. Westman, what we need to notice immediately, please see this with me, coming off of verses 6 to 29, again, Notice what Paul does not say. He doesn't say, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles really have no choice for their continued unbelief and self-righteous pursuit. The text doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say they have no choice. No, beloved, Paul never says that most Jews' failure to obtain salvation by way of their Messiah is because they were not chosen For the remnant are given hardened hearts. The text never says that. Instead, as we'll see this morning, as we've seen earlier in chapters in Romans, the apostle presents Jewish unbelief as a result of their own doing. Even back to chapter 2. They are responsible for their rejection of Messiah. Specifically, as we just read, they're guilty because they did not and are not Pursuing righteousness by faith. Pursuit is good and right, but the manner is all wrong. And with the advent of Messiah here in this letter, Paul questions, look in verse 30, what shall we say then? And that question, by the way, is less responding to a protest. And we saw that in chapter 9, verse 14. But more here, Paul's responding to an apparent paradox and the plight of the Jew versus some Gentiles. And let's examine that supposed paradox first, then we'll come back to the manner of running. So Paul says, what shall we say to Gentiles who are not pursuing righteousness, or righteousness that the law outlined, but attained righteousness by faith? What do we say to that? Implied here is the idea that some Gentiles pursued nothing but gained something. Do you see that? That's what's implied. They weren't pursuing it, but they gained it. Conversely, what of Israel that was pursuing a righteousness that the law outlined, that was their righteous pursuit, but did not succeed in that goal? Implied here, then, is the converse idea. The Jews pursued something, but gained nothing. And that's the idea in verses 30 to 31. Like a reversal, right, for most Jews and some Gentiles. Naturally begs a question, then, as you see to open verse 32. Why? Why is that the case? Why are some Gentiles rewarded with something they did not pursue? And why are most Jews not granted something that they did pursue? Do you see that? That's what the text is asking. Well, we'll come back to the Gentiles in a moment. But for the Jews, the answer, verse 32, is simply this, because they did not pursue it by faith. 
That's it. Paul says, they pursued as if it, righteousness, was based on works. That was the manner of their pursuit. Now, to be clear here, Paul is talking about saving righteousness. As we've seen overall in Romans, this is righteousness that justifies one before God, righteousness that makes one right. This is positional righteousness. Some call it forensic or legal righteousness. That's what we studied in chapter 5. And and simply we see here the Jews' problem was and is still that the Jew looked at the law of righteousness and they said this. They looked at the law, and I might submit to you, they still do, and they say this, okay, I I can do it. I see it. I've studied it. I've memorized it. I can do it. And I will do it. And when I do it, it will make me right in Yahweh's sight. There, the Jew is seeking to establish, do you see that? His own personal righteousness. That's it. And the problem, brothers and sisters, I trust you see is twofold. Number one, naturally, truly, the Jew, or anyone for that matter, is unable to do that. doesn't matter how much will you have to want to do that, you can't. Remember Romans 3, verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one is. None is good. And with that, remember, none is good naturally. What did we learn in Romans 5, verse 12? Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Remember, all sinned in Adam. All sinned. None is good. None can. We talked so often in this letter. We've seen that so often in this letter. Secondly, Establishing personal saving righteousness was never the intent of the law. We reach further back here. Remember our study in Galatians a number of years ago. In fact, we're going to listen to just a piece of that Galatian letter so insightful here. Listen to the apostle in that letter explain. Galatians 3.19. Why then the law? What's the purpose of the law? He says this, Galatians 3.19. It was added because of transgressions until, note that, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? See, same questions going on the Galatian churches. Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, see that? If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. In other words, if you could do works of the law, right, and you could be made right, you before them, or with them before God, then righteousness would be through the law. But the scripture, verse 22, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So, so helpful here. And then this. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Not the works, the faith. And then verse 24 puts it together. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that purpose we might be justified by faith. See that the law's purpose was to be a custodian, a guardian, until the law fulfiller's arrival had come, Jesus Christ. And more as Galatians 3 and Romans 4 teach us justification 
before God, being made right before God, was always by faith. And beloved, do you see that was and is the Jews' problem? Seeking justification not by faith, but by works. You see that? That's the problem. I want to be justified, or my desire is to be justified. My thinking is to be justified by what I do, not what I believe. But justification by what one does is not it. It's never been it in the Word of God. And the opposite is why and how some Gentiles attained righteousness without any pursuit. They didn't seek to work and store up personal law credits before God. And if you look closely as you read your Bible, you see this from time to time, don't you? You know those Gentiles that didn't work by a righteous law. They just pop up in the account of the Bible, and they simply believe in the righteousness of God. Do you remember Rahab? What does Rahab talk about? The things that she has done in Joshua 2? What does she say? I know the works that Yahweh has done. That's where my faith is aligned with. You know Ruth pops up in Ruth 1. She just simply clings to God, period. And the one tangible expression in front of her, here she has Naomi, a person of God. I will cling to you because I'm clinging to your God. It wasn't about a boast of what Ruth could do. That's always been the manner of being made right before God. Not what we can do, but faith in God. Mosaic law was given to define the manner of relationship. Not the means, or not the way that one can have that relationship in and of themselves. Not to be made right with God. Not to be justified. Now let's think for a moment. So we'll put this together in the Jewish mindset. Let's say you're a Jew like that, and that's been your MO your entire life. What do I need to do to be made right before God? Oh, and I have this law work in front of me. So it's not only like a hanging question. The Jew felt they had the answer in the law. Now, take that Jew, and if one approaches the law, and it's always been and continues to be a means to attain personal righteousness, and if righteousness is not found by works of the law... So you see what's going on there. They believe it is, but it actually isn't really. What do you suppose happens when the only means of righteousness arrives and starts declaring that? You have what Paul presents at the end of verse 32. Look at it. You have an offense in that pursuit. You have a stumbling. And the Jews, indeed, have stumbled over the stumbling stone. In fact, as they were destined to do, 1 Peter 2, verse 8 says that, and we've seen that in Romans 9. They were destined to do this. The only truly righteous one that could work and earn any credit by way of law had come. The law, remember, was to tutor the Jew, to point the Jew toward their Messiah, to look unto him, the anointed one. As the prophets foretold in many places, the Jew stumbled over the righteous one. And they're clinging to the righteousness of the law and their righteous works, at least in their own eyes. They stumbled over one that really came to shatter their self-righteousness. Paul, as you will see, goes to Isaiah next in verse 33 to demonstrate this. Look at it. It says, as it is written, familiar cue, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, 
and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul refers, that is taken from the book of Isaiah, and we're going to go there. He's really pulling together a few passages in Isaiah, two, likely three. Turn to Isaiah 8. Many of these passages we referenced in our corporate reading this morning. So good to set our hearts right here in Isaiah 8. And here, as we turn there, we have the mighty Assyria, as it's mentioned in Verse 6, at least they think so, but they were a force for sure. And all their might coming upon Israel, and fear is growing. And then this, note the prophet Isaiah giving us this word. Yahweh turns directly to him. Now remember, Isaiah would have been part of the righteous remnant. And he says this to Isaiah, For the Lord spoke thus to me, verse 11, with a strong hand upon me and warned me, not to walk in the way of his people. And that would make sense, right? You're the righteous remnant, right? Not only in the way of Assyria, but in the way of the unrighteous people. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear here, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Said to Isaiah, said to all the righteous remnant, let Yahweh be your fear. Verse 14, and he, this Lord of hosts, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken." Do you see that? He says to Isaiah as the righteous remnant, deliverance is seeking for you refuge in the Lord. Not about something you go and do, Isaiah. Of course, unrighteous Israel is notorious for leaning on all kinds of other things instead of the Lord. He says to him, I am bringing deliverance. I, the Lord of hosts, it will be a refuge to you, but what to the rest of Israel? A stumbling block. That Yahweh would save. Turn to Isaiah 28. Again, this is where we're just going where Paul is, is pulling from here. Amid judgment, so many judgment passages in Isaiah. Here's another one. And here in judgment, we're going to pick it up in verse 16. Isaiah says this, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one. So this is Yahweh speaking through the prophet. I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And note that whoever believes, and Paul's going to do something different with that second clause there. Whoever believes, here's the idea, they will wait. They will not be quick. They will wait on this cornerstone. They will wait on Yahweh. And what will they wait for, or why will they wait for? In light of this stone, this tested stone, this precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. And note this, this believing is equal to waiting. Now as we turn to Isaiah 49, let's put it all together. Here, the prophet has turned the corner in Isaiah 40, now looking at Uh, The promise, the comfort here, the restoration of Israel, the future vindication, right? And what do we see here in verse 23? We'll just simply read 
this verse, it says this, kings in that day, right? Think about this. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you. Wow. And lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And then this, those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. That's prophetic language oftentimes speaking to no shame on that day. All right, that is because you are justified before Yahweh. You will not be put to shame. We looked at that earlier in Romans 1. This is looking at the end, and these are those with belief, the true remnant. On that day, in that coming final day, Israelites, true one, if you wait for the Lord, if you look to him and only to him, then you will not be put to shame. Finally, completely. It's eschatological sense of justification here. You will attain to the resurrection and the everlasting life. This cornerstone recognition by faith. See it in ancient Israel, right? Here Yahweh's making clear is the only means of deliverance. And this cannot be presented any more clearly than Psalm 118. One more stop before we go back to Romans. Turn there, Psalm 118. This, what we're needing to see as we go through Isaiah this prophet, and now turn to the Psalms, this was always what was declared in the Old Testament testimony. It's cornerstone recognition by faith, the only means of deliverance, and it would be the hallmark of the future deliverance that would be coming. Let's pick it up in verse 22, this Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And then look at verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Beloved, this is the cry of the remnant. This is the cry of the righteous. Look at it. Looking on the cornerstone rightly, not tripping, but praising. Look at the thankfulness. To open this psalm, just a prayer of thanks and recognizing who Yahweh is. And then salvation. And then this, as you saw this morning, verse 19, and here it is, open to me the gates of righteousness. The, the remnant says, Yahweh, righteousness is your business, not mine. Open to me those gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. So much here in this psalm. And if you recognize this psalm and passage, it's because this is what Jesus says to stumbling Israel. Do you remember this? Israel who's stumbling toward the end of his ministry on earth. Matthew 23 says this, just listen to this, and you know this passage. He says this toward the end of his ministry, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Talk about tripping over a stone, picking it up to throw at the Messiah. And his forerunners. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? You see that? Woe is on who? Them for not believing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, and here it is from Jesus, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, you will not see me again until your eyes are opened. In other words, you will not see me again. 
Unless your eyes are like the righteous one, the one of faith that truly can make this declaration, you will not see me again. This coming off of a life of offense to the Jewish pursuit of righteousness. Jesus' entire life stood, and this is what you see in the Gospels, as an offense to the self-righteous Jew, because they couldn't see. The smaller stumbling stones, the prophets before Jesus were stoned. No surprise, the offense taken in light of the cornerstones arrived, right? Here he is. And noted, only when the true Israel recognizes the cornerstone and declare in this corporate sense, on that day, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Only when Israel gives that recognition cry, only then on that day will the offense be removed. Only then. Till that day, however, Jesus Christ, listen, remains an offense in pursuit to the Jew. He remains that. Because Jesus Christ represents, hear it, he represents that one in and of themselves, in their own race and doing, cannot be made right before God. The law of God is one thing. Think of all the lesser laws that people today want to make themselves right by. And Jesus Christ is an offense. You cannot be made right. My law works as such, and I must say, in light of that, an offense in pursuit to many more than just the Jew. Let's apply this text. Our family, Belgrave household, has been conversing for the past while now, it seems like the past couple years, with an extended family relative who would appear to be seeking. You know, that kind, maybe you have some in your uh, family, extended family, the relative or the neighbor that's just seeking. They're asking spiritual questions. Don't drop the ball, by the way, on those. Don't drop the Take them and run. Because in that moment, they're peaceful in their discourse about spiritual things. No one else is, but they are. And we've been interacting with this relative, and let me tell you, one thing is clear as we're interacting with this relative. The stumbling block is Jesus. In a moment of candor, one family get-together, he said this to my boys and, and to us. He basically said this, I understand everything you're saying about Jesus. And I understand that if I accept what you're saying, it has implications for everything. Did you hear that? Can you be more candid? One thing we love about this relative is he gets it. He understands it. But he's actually quite content to still be stumbling and tripping. Right? He understands the implications. That night, he got it. Not saving sense, but he understood the logic. Beloved, for the Jew and Gentile alike, the question always is this. Jew and Gentile, who do you say that I am? Right? That's the question. Mark 8, 29. And this morning, I wonder, again, whoever is in this room, I wonder if Jesus Christ is an offense to you this morning. Sure, you would never say that, because you don't say those things, right? Certainly not in this environment. But I wonder if in your heart of hearts, Jesus Christ is an offense to you. Maybe you walked in claiming Jesus, but right now in your heart, Jesus is an offense to you. I wonder. You would dare not say it, because you don't do that in your own self-righteousness here. But is Jesus Christ an offense to you? Listen, you say he is God, but what of his words? Are they an offense to you? He says, come, I will give you rest. You say, no, I want to work for it. 
He gives you truth and you say, I don't want it by faith. I just want to understand and then I'll believe. Is Jesus Christ an offense to you, Christian? Is he an offense to you this day? Whatever your stead, saved or being sanctified, I call on you, I urge you, and I beg you to repent. Receive him by faith. Stop tripping over Jesus and receive him in his fullness. Only, only then will you have the righteousness of God because it's only in him, Jesus Christ. That's an offense in pursuit. Secondly, the object of pursuit. Paul continues here. We're back to Romans, and now we turn to chapter 10. Paul continues, look at chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Look at that. We've been given a window into Paul's heart for his Jewish kinsmen before. Recall his cry back at the start of chapter 9, that heartfelt anguish for them. Look at chapter 9, verse 2. Do you remember this? I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now again, as we work our way through this section, right, we continue with these keen observations. Right, Let's not stop them. So again, we need to do this. Stop, and let's look at this. Paul does not say what. What he doesn't say is it, what is the use in praying for Israel and my Jewish brothers? What's the use? Look around. I mean, God foretold their stumbling. So it may be sad, but what can I do? Paul doesn't say that, does he? Nor does he do it. No, Paul prays in light of what he knows of the sovereignty of God's will and salvation and in light of what he knows of the plan of God. And we'll see this in chapter 11. Paul prays for Israel in light of what God has already determined for Israel. This is nothing short of astounding, and it must be at the lowest level informative. It's no different to Daniel's prayer. You remember in captivity, in the middle of captivity in Daniel 9? Right right in the middle of the prophesied time of captivity. In light of Jeremiah 25, Daniel would know that, right? That prophecy. Practically, church here, don't miss this. Daniel prayed for Israel, even though they were in judgment even though they couldn't get themselves out of exile. And here, Paul does the same. Even though he knows what God has prophesied for Israel, he prays. Beloved, please, let's not miss the implications for our own prayer. God is sovereign, yes. God hardens whom he wills, yes. God has mercy on whom he wills, yes. But that reality should Never impair your desire to pray for those stumbling. In fact, let me submit this to you all this morning. God's sovereign plan and promises should be the fuel and the foundation for your prayers. That's Paul's heart here. And beloved, it must be ours too. We always pray. Look at verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Paul says they, that would be our them, that's the stumbling Jew, most Jews, they have a zeal for God. Indeed they do, as we looked at off the top, but here Paul is not talking about the zeal of the faithful Jew. This is not zeal associated with the Israel within Israel. This is misguided zeal. This is a dangerous zeal, right? 
a deadly zeal. This is, we'll see, an ignorant zeal. This is not good zeal at all. Why? Because, verse 2, this is a zeal not according to knowledge. Do you see that? And you just picture that for a moment. The danger in being zealous for anything without knowledge. It, it's just understood how dangerous that would be in any domain, certainly in the spiritual. This is zeal with the wrong object of pursuit. This is zeal, look at it, with eyes on self and how much credit one can earn running. This is zeal where it is the Jew himself standing at the finish line, right? This is zeal for the Jew with the eyes on the Jew. This is zeal then that is ignorant of the right object or the right foundation of pursuit, which is we been learning is what the cornerstone and so we're clear beloved and we've said this so many times i know in other studies and it always comes to bear and this is the point here in romans 9 ignorance never gets anyone off the hook legally does it you, you can't stand before the judge and say i just didn't know that law existed the judge of it why didn't you say that we waste all this money on court proceedings you, you, no Ignorance never gets anyone off the hook, civilly, temporally, physically. How much more does ignorance not get someone off the hook in the heavenlies? Does that make sense? How much more? Ignorance is never an excuse. Well, they just didn't know better. I didn't know better. No, the Jew, look at it, is responsible for their unbelief. They're on the hook for it. And you know what adds to the tragedy is this in verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, here it is, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. I mean, we could add here so much from what they know about the Old Testament. But Paul, he could say, man, they had the prophetic writings. They had Moses. How could they miss it? They had Psalm 118. They had Isaiah. How could they miss it? But he doesn't say that. He jumps right to this. Look what Paul does. He says, even in light of those things, they didn't submit to God's righteousness because they sought to establish their own. And that's where he gets right to the heart of it. Seeking to establish their own righteousness. For most ethnic Jews, this is most clearly seen in the New Testament. Looking to establish their own righteousness. From the Pharisees, listen, to the Apostle Paul. Do you remember his testimony? Let me read you one of those. He gives it several times in the New Testament. Listen to this in Philippians 3, verse 4. I myself, this is Paul, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Listen to Paul. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, check, of the people of Israel, check, of the tribe of Benjamin, check, a Hebrew of Hebrews, check, as to the law a Pharisee, double-check, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, triple-check, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. You run out of ink. He's, right? He says, you, you, don't talk to me about law works. I've got you all beat, says the apostle. I've done it. I've got it. But then he says this in verse 7, but, transition, whatever gain I had, think of those check marks, I counted as loss for the sake of what? Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Isn't that interesting? Not doing things for Jesus. 
knowing Jesus, truly. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And here it is from the apostle. The Jew would have said the apostle of righteousness, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's an incredible testimony here. If anyone ever could establish their own righteousness, would it not be the Apostle Paul? He was the guy. But Paul was not just a son of Abraham, was he? He was a son of Adam. And he knew in the many ways, right, that he was condemned naturally, imputed guilt by practice. So work as he might under the law, no personal righteousness was possible. It was a striving in vain. And he testifies here and in other places in the New Testament, he strived in ignorance and blindness until Christ opened his eyes in Acts 9. And that's the only way it happens, by the way. The sovereign mercy of God bestowed on a heart. That's it. There is no other way. You don't cleverly win people into the kingdom. It's God's sovereign mercy. We give the gospel and we pray, pray, pray. But it must be God. And beloved, Paul's old malady, the malady of most Jews continuing today, is the malady that continues in principle for most of humanity today. And it's this ongoing sense. And I wonder, and this is Paul talked about this with the Galatians a little bit too in Galatians 3, I wonder even if you're saved or not, pursuing sanctification or otherwise, you might, we all, myself included, wrestle with this ongoing sense that we can in some way, establish our own righteousness. Do you know what I'm talking about? Again, we dare not say it. But in some way, I think we all wrestle with establishing our righteousness before God. For some, it's as simple as a math equation, right? My good work greater than my bad work, right? It can be as simple as that. And I'm, I'm going to be okay. For some, it's a personal righteousness based on external measures. So another math form, I believe, it's comparison. As David mentioned, how much evil is going on in the world? And let us not elevate ourselves and think, well, at least I'm not like what's going on in the Middle East or Ukraine, so I'll be okay. And for some, more insidious yet, they seek to establish their own righteousness, not against what everyone else is doing, but by way of it. What do we mean? And in line with it. This is the I'm for whatever everyone's going for. You know that? Whatever everyone's doing, I'm for it because I want that righteousness. And in some kind of perverse thinking, we think God's going to go with the majority in the end. And what everyone's doing must be true. It's toxic and deadly. Beloved, those means of righteousness not only are toxic and deadly, but listen, they are empty, says the Word of God. They're empty. The object is all wrong. And if you're living that way this morning, I just call on you to repent. Please, lay down your arms and repent. Turn to the right object, Jesus Christ. This is Paul's prayer here for his own kinsmen, that they may be saved from such blind and bankrupt righteousness. They're running a race, and they're so ignorant and misguided and off track, like the hare. So proud and confident of their own ability, right? 
puffed up on his own self-righteousness only. How did he do in the race? Never even finished. And in the truest sense of winning. Let us not be like that. The race is not run in that manner. And righteousness not attained that way. Look at verse 4. We close. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law, which simply means so much we could say. It's a very pregnant verse. We just simply say this. He is now the object of pursuit. It's Christ. Christ. Faith in him is the means of running, and the fullness of him is the law's culmination. That's it. The result of Christ's coming is that righteousness, and here it is. This is what Paul is doing in these chapters. It's now presented to all, the Jew first and also the Greek, to the Gentiles, to everyone who believes. Christ came and not only fulfilled the law perfectly, but he embodies it wholly. He is the law's goal. He is the law's terminus. And faith in Christ, here it is, places you in Christ. And thus, he is your righteousness. Listen to me. That's the only righteousness that will matter on that day. Can you hear the word of God with me this morning? There is no other righteousness. Whatever we have brought this morning, myself included, let's throw it away and count it as rubbish. It's all Jesus. That's it. No clever words, no diligent action, only Jesus and his righteous works. There is no other righteousness that will get us to God. To be in Christ does not mean, by the way, that the law is abolished, Matthew 5, 17, but it means that you now possess a righteousness, praise God, that you didn't earn. You, you possess it. You weren't even running for it. You've been given the greatest gift in the universe and you weren't even going after it. And you now possess it. Incredible. But and it's a righteousness that will save you. And that righteousness is Christ. And not only Christ. It's an effective righteousness. And it's not only an effective righteousness for salvation. It is the only potent righteousness for sanctification and life so that you can live responsibly. The the Jew missed this, and the Jew still does. They refused to submit to God's righteousness while clinging to their own, and as such, they continue to run wrongly. Their object of pursuit remains self and self-righteousness, but not for the faithful. Christian, not for you and I, right? Our object is Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness. We know that, right? It's just Jesus. Let us consider in this final minute or two Christ as we sum up this morning. Christ came. Christ came. We begin a season in one sense, physically, visually, in so many ways as we sung this morning. As we begin to remember this blessed season, Christ came. The prophets were true. Christ came. And his coming served to reveal that for the majority of Jews, zealous pursuit of the law was really only a mask to establish their own righteousness. They missed who the law pointed to. They were ignorant of the law's fulfillment. They were blind to the law's goal and the law's culmination. And listen, what heightens the tragedy? It was their very own Messiah from their very own line. And they missed it. The law and the prophets, as we learned in Romans 3, 21-22, always bore witness to the righteousness of God. 
the only effective righteousness, through faith in Jesus Christ. God's law given through Moses was never given to make one right before God. The law was given for the Jew to remain in relationship to God. Not to outline how the Jew could be made right before God. The Old Testament testimony cries this out. As this is the error in not only their pursuit of righteousness, but in every pursuit of righteousness as the wrong object. Beloved, such remains the plight of the zealous Jew. Righteous but misguided pursuit. A self-righteous pursuit, not of faith, but to establish one's own. Versus the righteousness of God that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus is an offense, and he still is. Yet, church, the coming of Christ into the world reveals all of our pursuits. It's penetrating to think of Jesus, isn't it? Yes, a preached, crucified Christ is indeed a stumbling block to the Jews. 1 Corinthians one twenty three. Imagine that first century. Christ crucified, Paul says. That's what we preach, that Messiah. Yes, the reality of a crucified, perfect lamb hanging on a tree as the only hope of your salvation would be absolutely scandalous to the self-righteous Jew. The thought that righteousness is a gift that cannot be earned by my work, but to preach a crucified Messiah is also folly to the Gentiles, to the nations. You maybe hear it today, and maybe you'll hear it around the Christmas dinner table. A crucified Savior? And I need to be saved from something? And, and, and that crucified one, who they beat and tortured and bore something about wrath, he's supposed to save me. No thanks, I reject that. Gentile Christian, by the mercies of God, that is not you, right? And like those Romans, those Corinthians, we, Westmount Saints, we have gained something we once never pursued. Can you think about that as you leave this morning? You have gained something you never pursued. As such, beloved, our righteous pursuit is not self, but its Savior. He is the object of our pursuit. We do not pursue after a righteousness so we can attain it. We pursue with a righteousness that we'd have already been gifted. Our perfect, spotless righteousness. And brothers and sisters, our labor now, hear me, our running, our pursuing is a glorious race toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So let us hold true. Can we do this together? Let us hold true to what we've obtained. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, Thank you that you have given us something that we never planned, designed for, ran after, and certainly could not attain, but you have given it to us. We pray for those that are yours that may not know that and are not running the right race. We pray for the Jew running the wrong race, thinking they've attained something that they do not have. And Lord, we pray your will be done to the Jew, to the nations, Lord. God, may we live out that truth that we have studied this morning. Please let us go now and live it out as we give you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and close in song.